Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and my guest today is Dr. Michael Shermer. Michael is the publisher of Skeptic Magazine, a monthly columnist for Scientific American, and a presidential fellow at Chapman University. He is the author of The Moral Arc, The Believing Brain, Why People Believe Weird Things, Why Darwin Matters, The Mind of the Market, How We Believe, and The Science of Good and Evil. His two TED Talks, viewed nearly 7 million times, were voted in the top 100 of the more than 2,000 TED Talks. In 2015, the bestschools.org website hosted an intensive dialogue on the nature of science between Rupert Sheldrake and Michael Shermer. These formed the basis of a new book called Arguing Science, a dialogue on the future of science and spirit, which we are going to explore today with Michael Shermer. Welcome, Michael. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Hi there. Well, I am delighted to have you on the show, actually, since I could only get one of you, because I probably come more from the side or the orientation of Rupert Sheldrake, and so that would have been the choir speaking uh, among itself. So I am delighted <laughs> to have you on the other end of the line. So let's get right into it. Why is the subject of science so important? What is science, in your view, that can form the subject of this contention between you and Rupert Sheldrake? Oh, well, I, first I think Rupert would say he's also on the side of science. So I guess the question is, what kind of science, what's the quality of the science being done in, in this particular area and so forth? Because uh, he says he's pro-science, I say I'm pro-science, so there's nobody arguing against science here. Um, but the, the reason it's important in general, of course, is that we live in the age of science. Most of uh, the progress that's been made in the last uh, couple centuries, uh, ever since the Enlightenment in the age of reason, has been due largely to science and reason. Um, and so we all sort of understand that in certain areas like medicine, dentistry. You know, there's no time in the past when you'd rather live compared to now just for those kinds of basic qualities of life in terms of the amount of food that we have to eat, the amount of time you have to work to make a living, things like that. I mean, life has just never been so good. Uh, but when it comes up to some of these other um, areas that bump up against religion, spirituality, things like that, people have a, a sense that science has nothing to say about that. And and I disagree. I, I, th I think, in fact, um, you know, our beliefs about, uh, you know, the ultimate nature of the universe, what the meaning and purpose of life is, morality, uh, ethics, so on, is all informed by science and reason. Uh, I don't see there's any areas that, that can't be at least informed by science. So I, I think that's why it's important to think about the, these issues from that perspective. And even if you're not into science at all, um, you know, that you, there's so much good material in, in the world of scientific uh, literature, like the book that Rupert and I just published um, of our dialogue, you know, anybody can read it. It's not rocket science. <laughs> you know, it's easy <laughs> to understand. And, uh, and in fact, that is what um, my literary agent, John Brockman, calls the third culture. That is, mm -hmm. it used to be that to be an educated cultured person, you, you need to understand literature and art and architecture and music, you know, Shakespeare, classical music, things like that. 
but now you really need to to be informed about science and um so that's there's a huge genre of popular science books. You can walk into any bookstore, go to Amazon, you'll find tons and tons of books that are written for the general audience. You know, people like Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Dawkins and Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill Nye, you know, myself, Steven Pinker, uh, you know, lots and lots of of authors that uh, write books that anybody could read that are that are scientific and not just popularization of science like there's there's the technical work and then here's the popular version. No, the books by like uh, people like Jared Diamond, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, for example, that won the Pulitzer Prize. Mm-hmm. That's not the popular version of his theory. That's the only version there is, and anybody could read it. Right. You know, right. you see it sold in airport bookstalls. Uh, so that's kind of the, <laughs> I think the new trend. You know, so, uh, Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. Anybody can read it. I mean, it's not necessarily easy well, for physics, but. I think I think the the uh, book of Ecclesiastes said it best that there is nothing new under the sun, and uh, what I see here is science coming full circle because the great humanists like um, uh, Darwin and and uh, you know that 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 whole flowering of science they were also very rooted in philosophy. Um, so Absolutely. yeah 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 yeah. What what I, I see are swings of the pendulum, that in order to um, clarify science as um, a, a predictive uh, modality, um, we had to impose upon it um, rules like statistics, like following mathematics. And, and in fact, you speak of the language of science as being statistics. Now, having been an experimental psychologist myself, I know how easily the conclusions can be manipulated depending on which particular tests you use. So how do you get the observer or experimenter out of the equation? Uh, well, you can't completely, of course, but the the purpose of the various tools of the scientific method, like the blind and double-blind conditions and the various statistical tests for significance, you know, confidence at the 0.05 level or 0.01 level or whatever, they're there for that very reason, that um, it's it's entirely possible there's an experimenter bias and I'm simply finding what I want to be true. Yeah, but uh, but your lab can run the exact same experiment, do it exactly the way I described the method section, and 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 you can determine if it's you get the same results or not, and maybe you do, mm-hmm. which gives us confidence that the effect is real, or, or maybe you don't, which makes us suspect that there's some other uh, effect going on, like experimenter bias or whatever. And um, so it's not perfect, you know. There's you know recent there's always these re- reoccurring debates in science that there's problems with replication or or the statistical methods are problematic, things like that. But that's just part of normal science: is that it's the checks and balances working. You know, most of the frauds that are turned up, you know, so-and-so scammed the, you know, uh, you know, scammed the journals by making up data, things like that. That does happen periodically. Mm-hmm. But the people mm-hmm. who discover it are inevitably the fellow scientists or the lab workers or the graduate students who couldn't stay quiet any longer. And, you know, the whistleblowers are the people inside the system. So in that sense, the system's working. Uh, to hopefully clear out as much of the, you know, the, the the bias and fraud fraud that does go on, like in any area of life. So, um, you know, I'm fond of saying science, it's it's the best tool we have, even though it's not perfect. 
Well, the tool has to be adapted to the particular uh, questions that one is investigating. So you wouldn't use the same kind of tools for biology that you would use for physics. So why do you think that controlled double-blind studies are necessarily appropriate for understanding paranormal, uh, and we'll discuss the whole term paranormal, because I agree with both your and Rupert's um, suggestion that there really is no paranormal, that it's just normal or natural that we haven't understood yet. But anyway, why do you think that, that controlled double-blind studies are the gold standard for investigating what are essentially um, more, more unknowable, more spiritual subjects? Well, but that's the question, are they? Um, and so the claimants, uh, the, the people that think there is such a thing as paranormal effects, like the ability to read the backs of playing cards or read people's minds or whatever, um, the claim is not that it's just a one-off event like a miracle, the resurrection or whatever, uh, and, and it's not repeatable in a lab. The claim is that that this can be repeated. Uh, and so if that if that's the claim, then, well, then, okay, let's try to repeat it. Now, if your claim is, no, no, it's... It's so highly unusual that the chances of it happening again under con controlled conditions are, are very low, so it's not really subject to experimental design. Okay, then, but then how do we know it's actually true? What, what, what other methods do we have other than, well, it feels true to me, or it's just, you know, anecdote, I heard this story anecdotally, it seems true. But that's not a reliable, those aren't reliable methods because well, we, we're all also capable of self-deception and, and confirmation bias and finding what we want to find. And uh, it's easy to fall for that for any any of us, including scientists, which is absolutely we had those methods in the first place. So the question is, is it true? It's not, you know, do I want it to be true or not? But, but is it actually true? Can people really now, do that? In medical uh, studies, um, anecdotal evidence is a bone of contention on, on the one hand, whenever alternative medical uh, results are uh, quoted, uh, they're dismissed as anecdotal evidence. But when people's reports of feeling better or whatever to some, uh, as the result of some drug are tallied, then that's considered hard science. Um, don't you think there's a bias in terms of what is considered legitimate in anecdotal evidence? Uh, well, no, I wouldn't call it a bias, uh, and I'll give you an example. Um, this this week is was published a um, a major paper in Nature Translational Psychiatry Journal by uh, a team of medical researchers at Deepak Chopra's place at uh, the Chopra Center at the La Costa Resort and Spa. Now, Deepak's a friend of mine, so he's been sending me this information. It's finally no longer embargoed, so I can tell you what happened. So. Because I did this program myself, I went there and, and uh, went through his whole meditation, yoga, uh, you know, massage, diet, tea, you know, all the you know, sort of mm -hmm. Eastern wisdom tradition methods of Ayurvedic medicine and so on. Now the client, now uh, the, oh, it's wait, time for a break. We're going to go to a break, so I. will tell you about that after the break. Wait. Then. Oh, I can't wait to hear about it. Welcome back. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Shermer about the book that he shares with Rupert Sheldrake called Arguing Science, a Dialogue on the Future of Science and Spirit. 
So, Michael, we left you at the Chopra Center wallowing in luxury and being cleansed and cosseted. What happened there? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if you go to the La Costa Resort and Spa for uh, several days, um, it's hard not to feel good. Uh, and, and so when Deepak says, well, you know, my, my people that come to my center, after they leave, they feel great and, you know, they're relaxed and and so on. Those are anecdotes. And But what's the difference between going to a resort and being pampered outside of the Chopra Center and inside the Chopra Center? And the only way to find out is to actually do controlled experiment, which is what they did. So they had um, 30 people who were had never meditated before who were there for six days, and they were taught meditation. And there were 30 people who had already signed up for the six-day program who were experienced meditators. And then there were another 30 people who um, just stayed at the resort and just did whatever they felt like doing, go to the spa or whatever. They weren't part of the Chopra Center. They didn't meditate. They just hung out at the spa. Now, then they did uh, all kinds of biometric measures, you know, blood pressure and all the usual stuff, but also genetic changes. They, they measured uh, differences in, you know, whether any changes in 20,000 different genes. Uh, Rudy Tanzi from Harvard Medical was one of the researchers on this. He's a very reliable, really top-notch scientist. There was another Nobel laureate uh, biologist there and so on. It was, it was you know, really professionally done. And now, now, first of all, everybody did better than, you know, you and I sitting here in our offices working. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's true. Going on vacation is a really good thing to do. You know, get away from the hustle, bustle, stress, and all that. That's good. But there was a difference between the two meditation groups and the vacationers, as they were called. And then there was a difference between the experienced meditators and the novice meditators. And so Deepak's point in all this is that, um, yes, it's good to go on vacation, uh, but you can't go on vacation 52 weeks a year, 24-7. Uh, but you can meditate. You can meditate at home before you get go to the office, you know, at lunch break, after, after a stressful day at the office, you can meditate. But the meditation itself has an effect. So assuming this is replicated, you know, the scientists are, uh, wrote this up at the end. They go, hey, look, you know, we're not making spectacular claims here. This needs to be replicated, but so far it looks pretty good. So, for example, some of the chemicals that stimulate inflammation uh, had, uh, had were different. And the amyloid, beta amyloids, which are the the chemicals that cause uh, the plaques and tangles in neurons in Alzheimer's, for example, uh, were lowered, uh, and so the med- that, that were not in the vacationers, but but in the meditators. So there might be something mm-hmm. with meditation that alters your gene- genomic production of proteins that changes, you know, brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that that now that's encouraging. You know, to to me, uh, you know, kind of hardcore science guy. You know, it's like anecdotes are one thing, and and I, I went there and I felt great too. But this is better than that. This is better than anecdotes. So that's right. why that makes this me confident. Good. Um, let's talk about skepticism because most people have uh, the impression that a skeptic is a priori negative, but you have a different definition. And and what? Uh, how yeah, do you course. define? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> and, the word seems to have been um, engulfed with like cynic and and pessimist and things like that. Skeptic is just. Uh, it's just an open-minded way of looking at claims, but asking for evidence and mm-hmm. asking about the quality of the evidence and so on. And, and, and most scientists are skeptics because most claims that are made in science turn out not to be true. You know, a lot, you know scientists just sit around cranking out hypotheses all the time and testing them. Most of them turn out not to be true. 
and everybody knows, uh, particularly in, in the physical sciences, that there, you know, there's a, a lot of people out there cranking out these what we call alternative theories of physics. You know, Newton was wrong and Einstein was wrong and Stephen Hawking was wrong. But I've, I've worked out this theory of physics you know, in, on the weekends in my garage. Okay. Uh, and most of these guys don't know that, that they're not the only ones doing this. They, you know, they send me these long papers and self-published books and go, look, you know, I'll share the Nobel Prize with you if you'll help me with the math. <laughs> and it's like, well, I don't really do math <laughs> myself. I'm a social scientist, but uh, you should know that you're not the only one. In fact, uh, people like Michio Kaku have on his webpage, um, like, if you have an alternative theory of physics, click here. <laughs> and he has a whole list of criteria, you know, that you have to be able to explain all the stuff that the current model explains and the anomalies, or at least some of the anomalies. Then his point is a good one, that... No theory in science explains everything. There's always a residue of unexplained anomalies. Now, what do we do with those? Well, first, that's what graduate students are for. <laughs> you got to give them something new to work on. And you know, maybe they work out the anomaly, maybe they don't. But, but in any case, there's, it's never going to be completely worked out. And so every once in a while, those anomalies will build up enough that uh, there'll be a new theory that explains all the old data and some of the new anomalies, and that may displace the old theory. So this is one theory of how revolutions in science happen. Now, the problem is, is that everybody thinks they're the, the Galileo of, of, the, of history and they're going to you know, overturn all of science. Well, it doesn't really work that way. Uh, you know, science is fairly conservative for the very reason that most new ideas are, are not true. They're, they're, most of them are wacky and way out. But every once in a while, you know, like, like viruses can cause certain kinds of cancer. Well, that was a pretty radical idea at the time, and it took decades for that to be accepted. And, you know, there's a number of those that have happened that we need to keep an open mind and, and also listen to what outsiders have to say. I mean, most of the time, you know, their ideas are wacky. But every once in a while, you know, every once in a while, something new is going to come up, so we should pay attention. You know, that's I kind of like Rupert because even though I, I think his ideas are a little wacky, but 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 what if he's right? Okay, so it, you know this is why we should uh, have free speech and, and and no censorship and allow people to have their say. You know, just in case we might learn something. <laughs> I think there are some people who have the same view of religion. You know, what if religion is right? Maybe we should cover our bets. And uh, yeah, but the problem you know. with that is which one. <laughs> Unfortunately, the creator of the universe wrote more than one book, and and the adherence to each of those books thinks theirs the theirs is the one true religion, and the rest are wrong. Well, so and the problem with the religions is there no there is no correct there's no method to determine like in science which is the correct hypothesis. You know, you know, but, Christians believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and he died for our sins. Well, Jews don't believe that, and neither do Muslims. So, and Muslims don't even accept the Trinity. They don't think there's a, you know, Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. They just think there's God, just Allah, that's it. And and Muhammad was messenger. Uh, so how do we determine which of those three interpretations is correct? They all believe in the same God, uh, but, you know, they're all monotheistic. You know, the, the, the you know, Yahweh is the God, or Allah, or whatever his name is going to be, but... Uh, but but from there they diverge. How can we tell which is the right one? And, the, and there is no method to tell. But does there have to be a right one? Isn't it a question of humanity trying to make sense of the ineffable and coming up with a working hypothesis to explain it? 
Now, some people will feel more comfortable with one hypothesis than another for cultural reasons, because of their upbringing, or, or uh, even for rational reasons. I mean, there are a lot of people who are drawn to the Eastern religions because they feel less didactic. They feel more encompassed by them. So why, why do, does it have to be right or wrong? Isn't there room for all of them? Yeah, I guess it depends on what the claim is. Now, you'll, you'll get a lot of evangelical Christians who say that the Bible is, is not just true for me, and it's you know, psychologically true, or it's metaphorically true, or it's our faith. They go, if, if that's all they said, then I, I really wouldn't have a beef with them. Uh, but but they go further than that. They go no no. We, you know we think you know like Ken Ham in his in his creationist museum in Kentucky. You know we think that the Bible is literally true. The Earth was created within the last ten thousand years, and dinosaurs and humans lived simultaneously. And the Ark is real, and there was a flood, and Noah, and the whole thing. Wow. Okay. So uh, how do you know? And, you know now we're in mm-hmm. the, the realm of science. How do you know this is true? Absolutely. And unfortunately, a bigger problem than creation museums in Kentucky are, are Islamists who think that not only is the book true, but uh, you should believe it. And if you don't, you know, we're going to kill you. We're going to cut your heads off. Well, okay, wait a minute. Uh, now it's getting dangerous, not just wrong, but dangerously wrong. You know, that, you know the creator of the universe said women should, you know, be, uh, should keep covered and should not be educated and not allowed to drive. Wait but, a minute. Wait a minute. No, no. Absolutely. That's but Michael, don't you, don't you think that the kind of interpretation of God that is more universal and uh, pervasive into every aspect of life, living, and creation is something that could transcend all of these differences and for that reason is so important to uh, expand our our appreciation of that particular perspective? Well, here I would agree with Deepak that something like a Buddhism, something like a you know, universal, deistic kind of thing. God is whatever you want to think of God as, or you know, it's a, you know, the laws of nature are God, or consciousness is God. You know, that would be far more unifying than any of the monotheistic religions. And you know, if your biggest concern is what time of day you're going to meditate, then you know, the, the world's going to be a much better place. So, uh, you know, I'm fine with all that. Um, and, now you uh, say you're you're fine with all that, but are you comfortable? I mean, do you have a concept of God? Uh, not a personal God, no. And I, and I'm I'm an atheist. I'm a, a humanist, enlightenment humanist. I call myself, but uh, agnostic in terms of the ontological question of God's existence. I don't think it can be tested or proved one way or the other. Atheist in terms of behavior. I just assume there is no God. And uh, and I'm not waiting around for one more experiment to determine whether there's a God or not, uh, in, in that sense. So I think if you know if it turned out there is something like a, a, the monotheistic God, Yahweh, you know, all powerful, all knowing, and so on, it would be something like a far future human artificial intelligence or an extraterrestrial intelligence so far advanced than us, it's godlike. Uh, so this gets to the, the question we were going to uh, discuss: is you know what is the paranormal, the supernatural? How, if you're living in the natural world, how would you know if something was supernatural outside of space and time? And I'm, I claim that there is no way to know uh, if, if there are such things as miracles, where God reaches into 
the universe from outside and stirs the particles somehow. How does he do it? What laws of nature does he use to move the atoms around or whatever? You know, if if there's something like, um, you know, a, a miracle happens because there was a prayer and, and God healed somebody's cancer, for example. Well, how did he do it? I mean, does he go in and manipulate the genome of each uh, tumor cell to quit replicating? We know how tumors grow. Uh, does he do that at the at the genetic level, the molecular level? How does you know how does that happen? And uh, it, and if it does happen in some natural way, then we're still talking about some sort of natural being operating in our world that we just haven't measured yet through science. So it would be part of the natural world. And uh, so my conception of God is you know there is no God, or if there is, it's just like an advanced extraterrestrial intelligence operating in the universe somewhere somehow. Well, we're going to get back to this subject when we return after the break. We're speaking with Michael Shermer, and we're talking about the book, Arguing Science. Michael, do you have a website that you can direct listeners to? I do, yes. Uh, skeptic.com, S-K-E-P-T-I-C.com, skeptic.com, or my own, michaelshermer.com. Uh, pretty much everything you need to know about science and skepticism are on those pages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Something like that. He said tongue in cheek. (laughs) Well, you know, we were talking about the the notion of God, but let's go back to this middle section in the book, which talks about mental action at a distance. I remember Larry Dossey talking about um, something unknown is doing I don't know what. Um, Right. I was... (laughs) a little uh, sad that Rupert Sheldrake focused his comments only on the areas in which he wrote his two, two of his books, namely psychic dogs who know their owners are coming back and, and anticipating telephone calls, because I think there is so much more compelling evidence in the study of near-death experiences, for example, um, and and we know that even the United States military has had remote viewers on its paid staff. So these are two areas of practical and verifiable use of spooky action at a distance that you never got to discuss. How do you feel about them? Uh, well, the um, yeah the government program of remote viewing. Uh, when you really look at the data, it's pretty problematic whether they were able to really identify things in, in some some kind of consistent, reliable, and replicable way. Uh, I've tried remote viewing. I took a course in it um, for a TV show, and uh, you know, I, I kind of got the idea of how it works. You know, if you're if you speak generally enough, you're you're bound to kind of give a verbal description that kind of resembles the object you're trying to remotely review. I think it was something like that. In any case, if it worked, you know, why didn't they do it to find Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein and and find now where the next terrorist attacks are? I mean, it's one of my challenges to, you know, astrologers and psychics who seem really accurate when they can predict, uh, you know, Kim Kardashian's love life, but they can't seem to get anything of use for the NSA or the CIA or, you know, national security, terrorist attacks, you know. Uh, Well, I personally... If this stuff worked, it'd be nice if it was a little more practical and useful. I I personally know uh, several psychics who are regularly consulted by police departments to find missing persons, and they have a very good record. 
Very good record. Well, okay. And do we have any data on that? I mean, is that anecdotal or do the police departments really? I mean, I've talked to police departments before, you know. Uh, you know, they, they put out tips and, you know, ask for tips from the public, and sometimes they get these psychics that say, well, I think I know where the body Okay. Well, it's near a body of water, it's in the woods, or what? Okay, that's too general. Um, you know, then they start to get more specific, but if you make enough predictions, you know, there's uh, eventually you might get a hit. So the question is, how many misses were there? Got to know the misses. The miss rate is important because we can always remember the hits, occasional hits, and go, wow, those are really unusual. But like the lottery winner, you know, it's unusual for that person, but somebody's going to get it. You know, is it like that? That's the question. And you know, I've looked at the police stuff, and and I, to me, it's not that impressive. And in fact, the police, mm-hmm. some of the police I've talked to, are unimpressed. Um, okay, well, let's and, go know. back to, let's go back to near-death experiences. I interviewed Jeffrey Long, a medical doctor, oncologist, whose website um, has collected um, many thousands of, of personal reports of near-death experiences, and what he did was a statistical analysis of the commonalities among them. Would you say that that approaches um, a a scientific methodology that you would feel comfortable with? Oh, it's good to to understand the phenomenon itself, but that doesn't tell us whether it's just inside the brain or also, you know, something reaching into like another dimension or whatever, wherever the afterlife would be. In my opinion, um, the reason for the commonalities is twofold. One, our brains are all wired the same way, so we're bound to have similar experiences. But also, you know, there's certain commonalities among cultures. So, for example, Christians are more likely to see Jesus. You know, Jews and Muslims who have near-death experiences are not likely to see Jesus on the other side. Uh, naturally, people see their own loved ones, but you would expect that either way. Um, and so here I, I refer people to Oliver Sacks' wonderful books um, on the various medical anomalies, psych, psych, psychological brain-related anomalies in his whole career, of which there were movies made about him and so on. And, and um, you know, it's, it's just remarkable how distinct and, and, and real feeling they are to the people who experience them, but also how obviously neurological the actual event is. So, for example, people that hear voices... You know, he talks about this in one of his last essays in in The New Yorker about um, uh, hearing uh, verbal hallucinations, hearing voices. Uh, And under brain scans, they can see that the auditory areas of the brain are are lighting up, that that you would expect that. Uh, So we don't sense our own brain working. So if you hear a voice, you're hearing it as if it's outside of your head, even though we know it's schizophrenics, for example, that the voices are only in their head. There are no external voices. But to them, it feels external. And so his point, uh, and my point, is that um, the near-death experiences, like out-of-body experiences, are very real to the person having them. They feel like they're outside of of your head, that they're really going on somewhere out there in the world, much like the sense-presence effect that uh, ultramarathoners and, and solo sailors and climbers get when they're alone. It feels like there's someone in the room, in the tent, on the ropes, in the boat, in the plane with you, and uh, but there is nobody there. I mean, they know retroactively, oh, yeah, that was a cool hallucination, uh, but it's well, just inside their but head. There were, yeah, but there were certainly a number of out-of-body reports of things that people could not possibly have known because they were, um, first of all, under anesthesia, 
Um, and second of all, they were outside of the, the actual space, like the, uh, the sneaker on top of the roof. Yeah, the sneaker, right. And it's so. always a sneaker. Sh uh, yeah, see, uh, oh, so first well, of all, that's... Oh, all right, yeah, well, I know. you talk about... You talk about um, hearing things within your head. What about the transistor radio that you and your wife heard that you very uh, generously reported in Scientific American? Right. That's a good good example of, of an unexplained anomaly that may not need an explanation. Um, well, for for the listeners, what happened was on, on the day of our my wedding to my um, – Wife from Germany, she had shipped over a bunch of her personal belongings, some of which were lost. Uh, she was raised by a single mom and her grandfather, and you know he since died, and she kept some of his uh, personal affects, including a transistor radio, which I could not get to work. I was hoping to have it working when she came here to my home in L.A., but um, it didn't work. And then the day we got married, she was feeling super bad about not having any friends or family there. It's just my friends and family. And uh, this was at my house, and uh, so all of a sudden, you know, we heard some music emanating from the bedroom when we went back there to just have a quiet moment before we had our ceremony. And it turned out to be this transistor radio that was dead for, you know, for years, and I tried to get it to work, couldn't get it to work, and it was just in the back of a drawer underneath a fax machine. I thought maybe they were putting radios in fax machines now. <laughs> and uh, But no, it was, uh, and it operated for the whole day and night, you know, we had, and it was on... And it wasn't even between stations. It was like on perfectly tuned to, I don't even remember what the station was, but it was beautiful music and very romantic, and it was great. And then it went dead the next day, and it's been dead ever since. So I wrote about this in the context of you know, really hardcore skeptics who, who seem close to even considering the possibilities that those events should mean anything. Now, it, it doesn't mean that my wife's grandfather is still alive on the other side channeling radio signals. I don't know what it means, but... And even Deepak, who I've talked to about this, thinks, well, of course there's a natural explanation. There's a little piece of dust in there or whatever, but it's the consciousness linkage that's that's related to love and connectedness between people that made the dust particle move or whatever. Um, you know, but 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 in in a, in a way, it doesn't really matter what the actual explanation is. It was the timing of it for us and the emotional content that mattered. And here I would agree with you that, that you know, not everything has to be explained by science uh, or we don't have to have an explanation for something to appreciate its emotional content and importance to you personally. And so this kind of gets back to, you know, when someone goes to a place like Deepak Chopra's center, you know, does it really work? Well, you know, scientists want to know and so you've got to run the experiment. But if you go and you feel better and, and maybe you're, eczema goes away or whatever is bothering you, then who cares what the science says? It worked. You feel better. Mm -hmm. that, you know, and so that's another way of thinking about it. You know, if, if your headache goes away, your cancer's gone, what, who cares what uh, the scientists say? It worked for you, so that's good. So we think about it in like two different levels. There's, you know, the sort of collective scientific enterprise, and then there's you personally and, and how you live your life and how you derive meaning. That, that's a different kind of analysis, I would say. I think you said the magic word, deriving meaning. Um, don't you think that that has been the impetus or the attraction of people to religion to give some sense of meaning to why they're here? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's what most religions do, but not just religions, but myths, you know, like Joseph Campbell's mm -hmm. work on sure. commonalities across and, myths. And what are religions but collective myths? Right. 
Yes, and again, I, I don't have. I mean, a lot of my friends, scientist friends, are Jewish, and you know, they they're atheists, but they uh, they practice cultural Judaism, and I completely get the rituals, the food, the family gatherings that take the day off once a week to reflect, and so on, and so on. It's all makes perfect sense, and you don't even need the supernatural element to see the value of that. And again, if if everybody was like you and, and Deepak and you know the, the world, I would not be even in the least bit worried about religion. I wouldn't even think about it. But it's the extremists that you know that cause problems that that makes me worried about it. So that's why, you know, I get my hackles up when people make you know empirical claims about their religion being true, the one and only true religion mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. you know everyone else to believe. Forget that. No, no good. That's not good. We're speaking with Michael Shermer. I'm Miriam Knight, and. For our final segment, I really want to get to the nature of consciousness. I think you and Rupert, Michael, uh, sort of agreed on the pervasive field of consciousness. And if I understand correctly, where you differ is that, Michael, uh, you believe that it is unconscious, whereas Rupert believes that there is a conscious element to whatever you want to call this this field. How do you get past that? Don't you think yeah. that there's a point at which they converge? Uh, well, it's difficult because there's a fundamental worldview difference in you know what's at the bottom let's put it that way that is is it a consciousness first or is it materialism first and uh you know i take kind of the standard neuroscience perspective that uh, consciousness is what brains do the mind is what the brain does there's no mind separate from the brain you got to have the neurons and 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 without that there's there is no consciousness whereas rupert thinks if i understand him correctly that consciousness exists out there in the world separately from brains and the brains are more like the radio tuner, the TV tuner, something picking up the the waves that are out there, and uh, so this is how he thinks. You know that that dogs know when their masters are coming home. There's this you know, field. That, like, stare at the back of somebody's neck. There's a field in there, like a quantum field kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, in which that you know that that brains interact with this field, and that's, that's and so we're all interconnected. For example, he thinks that the New York Times crossword puzzle is easier to do later in the day on Sunday afternoon and Sunday morning because more people have solved it and the solution is out there in the, <laughs> the field. Now, I, I've done the New York Times crossword, but I don't find it easy at any time of the day, <laughs> but that's just me. Uh, uh, but, see, I don't think so. I don't. I think before, you know, before there was any life on Earth, for example, I, I think the universe existed. Everything was just doing what's, doing its thing without consciousness at all. Now, um, and, and that so the question is is which is the correct hypothesis? You know, can consciousness exist separate from brains? And I, I so I always ask people like Rupert and, and Deepak, what, well, what's the where is it? How do how do we know? And their answer is usually quantum physics. That you know, there's there's spooky action at a distance in these mm-hmm, quantum mm-hmm. experiments. And I, you know, you I'm not a quantum Bruce physicist. Lipton? What's that? Have you studied Bruce Lipton's work? Uh, no, I know who he is, but but no, I don't know that. Uh, tell mm-hmm. me. Well, he's a biologist, and um, he points out very cogently that uh, reactions in the body take place at a rate and a speed far faster than is possible through 
a chain of uh, neuronal action. And uh, I recently interviewed someone who talked about the fascia, uh, the connective tissue of the body, as uh, being filled with a gel, uh, a, a fourth form of water, actually, a gel form of water that acts like a fiber optic cable, and it actually transmits um, information at the speed of light or, or whatever. So Faster than um, neurons, the, anyway. Faster than neurons. So um, light seems to be uh, emerging as the mediating connector. Um, did you ever hear of an experiment uh, through which they shined a laser light through a fertilized uh, duck egg into a fertilized chicken egg? And when the chickens were born, they had webbed feet. <laughs> no, I haven't heard of that one, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, that's a new one. That sounds pretty far um, out there. I, I, I would really love to. I'd love to get to the bottom of that one, but it's intriguing <laughs> if that so were the true. Duck. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, see, but, those, uh, those kinds of things are the, the kinds of stories you hear that really need to be, you know, triple checked, double checked, uh, replicated, and so on. I totally. And the reason is, you know, the fundamental principle of skepticism is extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so the, the more the f further out you go with the claim, then you really need to have better better than average evidence uh, to, just to get people's attention. And usually it's the opposite. The, the evidence seems to get weaker. This is why people like Sue Blackmore, who the British uh, psychologist who was a believer in the paranormal, she knows Rupert quite well, uh, you know, became a skeptic because she tried to replicate these things and, had, and found that the tighter the controls, the weaker the effects got. Now, people like Rupert have explanations for that, and he claims that you know his experiments you know counter that. And then people like Richard Wiseman and Marilyn Schultz have tried to replicate Rupert's experiments, and Marilyn gets the effects, and and Richard the skeptic doesn't. So maybe there's a skeptic bias, maybe there's a believer bias, maybe they're both biased. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I admire Rupert for at least trying to 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 run the experiments and let's get to the bottom of this. Okay. Um, but, you know, those are pretty extraordinary claims, and so we really need, you know, replication and so on. That's why scientific revolutions like plate tectonics and the movement, you know, the, the movement of continents that took decades, you know, from Alfred Wagner in the 1930s until the late 60s before that was accepted. And the reason is because it's such an extraordinary claim. Continents moving? Are you kidding me? These things, you know, weigh billions of tons, trillions of tons. What? How can that be? And then, you know, it wasn't until there was a mechanism behind it. So maybe what Rupert needs is is to figure out the mechanism in the brain, if the effects are even real, uh, that would cause dogs to know when their owners are coming home or whatever. Now, he'd probably say, well, there's a that quantum field or something like that. But, well, don't forget, what about homing pigeons? There, There is a uh, magnetic center in, in their pineal gland, I believe, that enables them to tra traverse thousands of miles and find exactly where they uh, emerged from and, and go back there to nest. I mean, yeah. the, these, these effects are real. Our yeah. understanding is evolving. And I yeah. think this is the, the word that we need to focus on. Our, uh, we as a species have evolved in our ability to, to use science and technology at an extraordinary rate um, in, in the past few years. It's like a flywheel gaining momentum. And um, 
the, the books that I get for review have been just flooding in with people having personal awakenings. And there is nothing that beats a personal experience of the mysterious, the ineffable, to make one a believer. Until you've had it, you don't, you don't really have that conviction. But when you have had it, uh, you 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 can't forget it. You you cannot nay say it. For you, it is real. And I personally have never had such an experience, and I wish I had. On the other hand, my husband has. So so that has opened my skepticism, and and I I totally am from your your neck of the woods, Michael. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm skeptic in chief, but mm-hmm. when. When you start experiencing anomalous things happening, you have to open your mind to the possibility that there is something out there um, that, that is eternal, that draws us forward, and it makes life so much more colorful. Don't don't you feel that you're missing uh, well, something? Okay. I, yes, colorful for sure. Uh, and one of the reasons I've always been interested in this subject, going back to the '70s, was you know the idea that there could be such things, or just mysteries that are part of science that we haven't figured out. You know, like mm-hmm. it'd be like being in the 1920s and 30s and, and and running these weird quantum physics experiments and going, this just can't be. I mean, Einstein famously, you know, no, this can't be true. It just can't be true, and it is true. Okay, so. Maybe it's something like that. that you know, maybe there's nothing to explain. There's just weird stuff happens. But maybe there's something else about the quantum field or whatever that we don't yet know, and it would be interesting to know. Uh, and so let's let's keep the research going. And just remember, it's always in science, always okay to say I don't know. We can't explain everything. It's okay to not have an explanation for everything. And and just just leave it at that. Just be happy with the mystery. The mystery is fantastic. It's wonderful. The the universe turns out to be far older, bigger, grander, weirder than anyone ever imagined, all the way up until just recently. And uh, not just compared to the Middle Ages, but just compared to the 1950s. Say, you know, no one imagined that the universe could be expanding at an accelerating rate, and so on and so on. Wow. I mean, that to me the traditional religion the stage is too small you know the universe is just far grander than than these uh ancient religions can capture in any one particular worldview that we should just be open to all these possibilities i just think of these ancient religions as being training wheels they they uh bring us along at a level that we can accept uh, until yeah, sure, sure, sure. Level. Yeah, but if you if, if if you lived in the Iron Age, you know, the, of course they they use the language they that they used. Uh, you know, if you look up at the night sky, it does look like a dome, a crystal dome that goes around the Earth that's stationary. You don't feel the Earth move. The sun rises. It's what it looks like it's doing. So yeah, it makes sense if you think you know you don't if you don't know what we know, it's hard to not know. <laughs> Curse of knowledge, but. Um, you know, if you think, put yourself back in the time of you know thousands of years ago, no wonder, you know, they they came up with these worldviews as they did. Mm-hmm. What do you think will be the next step in our understanding of the universe? Uh, well, I, I do think that, that two of the biggest areas are uh, c- consciousness. It is it is a hard problem to solve. 
you know, not how neural pathways give rise to experiences um, like uh, hearing things or seeing things, but just the internal through your eyes perspective and your experience of having thoughts and ideas. How, how does that happen? And, you know, nobody knows the answer to that. That's why it's called the hard problem. You know, you read Dan Dennett's huge book, Consciousness Explained, as somebody famously said, he explained everything but consciousness. And that's because no one has, Dan's a super smart guy, but no one's explained it yet. And, and that kind of gives, it kind of opens the door to lots of different interpretations. Oh, dear. That's the end of our show. Well, we could have gone on all day. I've been speaking with Michael Shermer about the book Arguing Science. Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was a lively conversation. <laughs> it was lively indeed. I'm Miriam Knight. Thank you for listening. Do join us next week. Until then, God bless. <laughs>